Hello and welcome to the March episode of the Paediatric Research Podcast. I'm Charlotte Stoddart and this month we're investigating the causes behind a mysterious brain syndrome. Severe persistent headaches and vision problems can be signs of a brain tumour. But some patients experience these symptoms without the tumour, a condition known as false brain tumour or pseudotumor cerebri syndrome. This mysterious state is seen in adults and children, and scientists don't know what causes it other than a general increase in pressure in the brain. It's a puzzle that Shana McCormack and team at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia have been trying to solve. Shana told me more. It's caused by an increase in, of the pressure in the fluid surrounding the brain, the cerebrospinal fluid. Um, and it occurs in the setting of that increased pressure, but without an actual tumor or another apparent cause of increased pressure around the brain. The reason it's important clinically is that because if left untreated, it can lead to permanent vision loss in affected children and adults. So it's an important clinical entity to understand for that reason. Have you yourself seen the effects of this condition in children in the clinic? I sure have. I mean, we see in endocrine clinic two kinds of patients who are affected by pseudotumor cerebri syndrome. One is kids with a variety of endocrine conditions. So conditions as varied as adrenal insufficiency, so problems with adrenal hormones, thyroid dysfunction, kids treated with growth hormone. All of these different kids can develop pseudotumor cerebri syndrome as a side effect of either their condition or its treatment. So I see those kids. Um, I also see kids and adolescents who are obese, who develop pseudotumor cerebri syndrome as a consequence of obesity itself. So I've seen those two classes of patients in, in our clinic. And does it manifest itself very differently in children compared to adults? I'm so glad you asked that because it really does. And I think understanding the condition in children will really help us achieve an understanding of the condition as a whole. So in adults, it tends to occur, at least what the textbook definition says, is in obese women of childbearing age. And in older adolescents, we see that predilection for obesity as well. But what's really interesting is that before puberty, instead of being a predominantly female condition, there's an equal mix of affected girls and boys. And before puberty, children tend not to be obese. In fact, children tend to be normal weight. So it adds to the complexity of understanding this condition that it changes so significantly over the course of the lifespan. But as a pediatrician, I find that really interesting. And why has it been such a, a difficult condition to understand? You know, I think there are, there are three reasons. One is that there are so many different associated conditions. So I mentioned some of the hormonal associations, but also conditions like anemia, vitamin A toxicity, kidney disease, and there's a huge range of conditions where pseudotumor can occur. So coming up with a unifying mechanism can be challenging. Um, another challenge is that it's a really difficult space to access. When we think about studying it, we're talking about studying the brain and the pressure and the fluid around the brain. So it's not an easy system to access for additional studies or experiments. Um, and finally, there's no commonly used animal model for this condition, so that limits the mechanistic studies that can be done as well. But I think 
there are avenues that we've considered as a research group to really tackle all of those three challenges and really make progress in this condition. You mentioned that um, some conditions, endocrine conditions, for example, and obesity are associated with pseudotumor cerebri syndrome. Does that then give us a clue as to the mechanism? I think it does. Um, When we think about mechanism, what intrigues me most about all of the different problems, in particular the hormonal problems, is that to me they seem to converge on one very fundamental problem, and that is the brain is a really important organ. It's sensitive to high pressure, but it finds itself in a closed box, in a closed space. It finds itself in a skull. So if the pressure goes up by a little, that's a big risk to the brain. So the brain has several really important conserved mechanisms for maintaining normal pressure in the brain, but we don't fully understand what those are. And I think the different um, endocrine and other factors all converge on that common system. So there are endocrine hormonal systems for regulating fluid balance in the rest of the body, so ways to maintain normal salt and water levels in the body that act at the level of the kidney. And we think they probably act at the level of the brain as well, so we have more work to do to establish that with certainty. And understanding that better is exactly what you've been trying to do and what you've published in this paper in Pediatric Research. How did you go about um, this review? What kind of things did you look at? What a great question. So we looked at clinical case series, for sure, um, but we were also really interested in literature in other systems where fluid balance was important. So in particular, the kidney, because that literature is more well-developed, I think in large part because the kidney produces urine that is easier to study than the CSF, the cerebral spinal fluid, is to study. And we took each hormone system in turn and we looked at what's known in people, both in adults and children, and we also looked at what's been looked at in animals and in cells. And in your review, you go into quite a lot of detail um, for each of these different systems. But can you just... um, Give us a a general picture of what you found out. So coming up with a a general consensus can be challenging, but really at the center of our model is what we hypothesize is the brain system, similar to the kidney system, for regulating salt and water balance in the cells. So there's one important hormonal system that's involved in that. That's called the mineralocorticoid system. Aldosterone is one hormone that's involved in that system. Also, water balance is regulated by a different set of hormones called aquaporins or the vasopressin system. So we look at how different hormonal systems affect mineralocorticoid action as well as vasopressin action together to regulate salt and water balance in those important brain cells. And is this a significant change in the way that we understand pseudotumor cerebri syndrome? I think one new idea that we've added is the role of mitochondrial bioenergetics. So we were really excited to learn that in nephrology, in, in the study of kidney fluid balance, a number of mitochondrial metabolites have been implicated. So the mitochondria are, are parts of the cells that produce energy. And bioenergetics, our energy production, is really important in so many different conditions that we were excited to learn that our colleagues in in nephrology have identified the importance of some metabolites from the mitochondria in regulating fluid balance in the kidney. And so we think this might be an important area to understand more deeply in pseudotumor, which I think is a novel contribution.
Is it still too early to use um, some of this to prevent or treat the condition? I think it's probably early days yet. What I'm most excited about in the near term with respect to benefit for patients is that I think we are closer to designing the kind of studies that will produce helpful biomarkers. So especially as a pediatric clinician, if I could come up with um, a blood test to measure cerebrospinal fluid pressure rather than having to do potentially multiple lumbar punctures or spinal taps, which is the way we assess pressure now, I think that would really be amazing and would really be of benefit to our patients. So I think the next incremental step that may benefit patients is using some of these insights to test blood-based markers of pseudotumor that will help us in the diagnosis and in monitoring of therapy um, and really make that a better experience for patients. And then we're also working with colleagues, of course, to develop an animal model that may help us test these hypotheses in a more invasive way um, and really learn more that way. So the opportunity to do the review has really been a springboard for these additional projects. Shana McCormack from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. You can read her review at nature.com forward slash PR, where you'll also find more episodes of this podcast and many more reviews and research papers. I'm taking a break from the podcast for a while to conduct my own experiment in paediatrics. I'm becoming a mum. But I leave you in the capable hands of my colleague Kerry Smith. She'll be your host for the next episode in May. So from me, Charlotte Stoddart, it's thanks for listening and goodbye for now.